Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach. Always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're really reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? Oh, yeah. You know, that is the million-dollar question. Do you want to change? And if you do, how do you go about it? If you are a man or woman with compulsive problematic sexual behavior, there are so many choices out there. There are so many professionals who specialize in helping you. And yet, there seems to be some staples in managing the addictive mind. And tonight, we have expert Darren Ford, who not only uses a specialized technique with his client and clients to actually uh, create a guide for compassionate recovery, but he also has a mindfulness certification that he is working with professionals all over the world to, to teach them what he has utilized himself and what he believes is one of the best ways to have compassion for oneself and to really make a difference in recovery. So I am so thrilled to have Darren Ford on, and I'm going to ask him a variety of questions because one thing I know is this is a man who has done it all, and and I want to find out what he's doing currently and how it's making a difference in the world. So Darren Ford, welcome to Sex Help with Carol the Coach. Thank you so much, Carol. It's such a privilege to be here. I'm I'm very uh, grateful to you for having me. Well, you know, it's no it's no surprise to anybody. If anyone has read my books, they know that Darren, you are a master at creating published works and publishing works. And so, you and I now have got quite a history, and I too am grateful for you and. 
you know, when your new book came out, I said to myself, oh, my gosh, I've got to talk about this because it really is a, it shares your own personal story and how you dealt with all the trauma in your life. And then on top of it, you know, you are treating sex addicts and uh, you're working with them. You're teaching mindfulness in certification classes. And, and so I want to ask you, um, how did you get your start? I mean, where did it all begin? Yeah, you know, I think to, to answer that, I would say where it all began was uh, when I was basically living on the streets. I was couch surfing after running away from home. Uh, because of the abuse at home, and I uh, got in contact with the Gay and Lesbian Center in Los Angeles and started getting therapy there, and the therapist I had, Sharon Nassell, she introduced me to mindfulness, and back then, this was, you know, 30, 30 years ago or more, uh, and back in those days, the idea of mindfulness was not scientifically sound like it is now, but that's really where it all started. Uh, She, for many years, worked with me and encouraged me to begin to practice uh, mindfulness and the generation of compassion for myself, uh, which really started the ball rolling. Um, And then when I Later in my life, after I started to come to terms with my addiction, and I started to to go into treatment centers, and I realized that the mindfulness stuff that I had learned in my past was actually incredibly effective in helping me gain um, a non-reactive relationship to my addictive cravings and to the way that my mind Uh, drove my desire to continue to act out. And so, you know, all of that really is what then led me to go, okay, there's more here than I have realized. And then I really started to do some research and started to um, learn how to become a therapist myself and eventually got my degree and then got... um, connected to become a CSAT and that's when actually you and I met for the first time and since then it's just been continuing to follow that path and follow where the idea of mindfulness and the science has led me and it's been incredibly successful in helping people not uh, struggle so much with the pain and the trauma and the addiction in their life. Yeah, and and I know... I know from working with you that there is a very soft, courageous, but compassionate and gentle um, part of your direction, whether you're working with a writer, whether you're working with an editor, whether you're working with a professional. And so you stand for compassion. And certainly the mindfulness you believe in stems from compassion. So Can you share with our audience a little bit about the mindfulness you practice? And, you know, even the book that you and Christy wrote, The Addictive, Transforming the Addictive Mind. I mean, there's no doubt that that book 
really takes you through the first month of mindfulness-based addiction therapy. And let's face it, Darren, addicts all over the place say, you know, I can't quiet my mind. I can't sit still. Um, My life is chaos, and I don't know how to manage that. And, And you and I both know mindfulness is the answer to that. So explain a little bit about the mindfulness that you ask your clients to practice. Sure. So I think that where we want to really start is we hear everybody discuss the idea of mindfulness, but nobody really gives a clear definition of mind. And so when I refer to mindfulness, I just like to acknowledge that I view the mind as a sense organ. So we have our eyes, we have our ears, our nose, our mouth, our skin, and then we have our mind. Our mind takes in all of the data from all of the other sense organs, organizes it, coordinates it into something that we call perception. It reflects on the past and then spits out a hypothesis about our future. That hypothesis is always skewed through the lens of our past, through the past causes and conditions of our lives, and is never 100% correct. Uh, you know, we, we get close, but the truth is, is that our sense organs don't give us all of the data. One example would be like ultraviolet light. We don't see it at all. Um, and so there's a whole bunch of the light spectrum that we don't recognize and that we don't see. So there's all kinds of information out there in our, that, that our mind is, is trying to take in but doesn't have access to. And those hypotheses, when, we, when our mind spits out that idea about doing something because it will be good or feel good or help us, um, if we over-identify with that hypothesis as being accurate and just jump into it without questioning whether or not it's actually going to be a positive thing for us, we, that is a moment where we're not in mindfulness. When we are in mindfulness, we're, be a, we're, we're able to see the ideas that the mind spits out as thoughts and beliefs. And before we behave them, we're able to say, wait a minute, let me, let me look at this. Let me take a moment to analyze whether or not this would be a constructive or skillful way to relate to, to what's happening right now or an unskillful way. And if we don't have a fundamental desire or relationship or understanding of compassion, then even when we start to reflect, we'll respond with a lack of compassion, which will be harshness, and that can lead us down to a very dark road. And you will hear this a lot of times in the minds of addicts. They'll say, well, I'm, I'm just a terrible person because I have acted out. They'll say, you know, and the, that idea of terrible person is a hypothesis of their mind that is generated primarily by the past traumas that they've experienced. You know, trauma is when we have had our wants and our needs subjugated to the wants and needs of another person. And the moment that we tried to speak up and say, wait a minute, this isn't working for me. Please hear my needs the environment or the other person responded to us saying that we were bad or wrong for having that. So that harsh 
relationship to wants, to our own personal wants and needs is started when we're very young and practiced and cultivated until when we're older, we don't know how to relate to ourselves unless it's through a harsh and, and what I would almost say violent way in the long run. Because ultimately, any addiction, addiction whether it's sex, food, uh, drugs, the end result of any untreated addiction is death. And you know, people say, oh, that's not true with sex addiction, but it is true. I work with people all the time who've been in car accidents because they're looking at pornography while they're driving. HIV, other uh, STIs and STDs, even though HIV is no longer a death sentence, when you're out having unbridled uh, sexual behaviors and you're not taking precautions, you put yourself at risk. So death is very much a risk for any type of addiction. So that was a, a, I got a little sidetracked there, but to come back to the idea of compassion, compassion Mm -hmm. is the fundamental tool that we must cultivate and, and utilize to uh, move into a recovery process. Recovery is really about the addict learning how to constructively love themselves. And I break compassion down into two types, into constructive compassion and destructive compassion. And I I give a very uh, superficial uh, example of of destructive compassion, but usually it's simple and it's concise and it works. So the idea here is destructive compassion is let's say you're driving in your car, you pull up to the stop sign, and the person is holding a sign that says, I'm an alcoholic, I'm having the shakes, and I need a beer. And you just reach over and you hand them a beer. In the short run, you've made them feel better. However, in the long run, you've cultivated their destruction. You've helped cultivate their destruction. This would be destructive Mm -hmm. compassion. Constructive compassion is you pull up to the stop sign, you roll down the window, the person says, you know, I'm, I'm an alcoholic, I need a beer. And you say, listen, I'm not going to give you a beer, but if you get in my car, I'll take you to a treatment center and get you some help. In the short run, you've left the person feeling emotionally dysregulated. They will become, their mind story will, will their mind will project the hypothesis, I just want my drink. And they'll become reactionary. They may even get upset and mad. But if they go with you and they get the treatment and they get into recovery and they learn how to love and care for themselves in a constructive way, they will then come back to you later and say, thank you for helping me save my life. This is constructive compassion. And so we have to learn how to model and teach and be present with an addict through the process of learning how to cultivate more constructive compassion for themselves because they've implemented that let me feel good immediately or that destructive compassion. And that makes makes so much sense. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm thinking about my clients who – my clients that have the best sponsors – sit with them Mm -hmm. in their pain and hold that for them and are also gentle about the fact that they need to be in their pain to know what it has to teach them. And they actually work with them mindfully 
to get them to accept what's happening to them so that they will then learn from it. And your books very much have that same premise. I mean, I'm sitting here looking right now at the uh, Transforming the Addictive Mind, and that is that 30-day program that isn't just for people with sexual addiction. It can work for anybody, but, you know, certainly workaholics and foodaholics and drug addicts and um, alcoholics. I mean, this kind of stuff encourages self-reflection and also changing our thoughts. And, you know, it's one of my taglines, when you change the way you look at things, the things around you change. And as you become more compassionate and you allow yourself the, the right to be human, you're much more likely to make better choices. Absolutely, right? Because those choices are aligned with reality. As, you know, M. Scott Peck always uh, says is, you know, mental health is the absolute commitment to reality, no matter what the cost. And so the idea there, right, is that there's a fundamental fact about us as human beings. We feel. We have emotions. Emotions are not good. They're not bad. Uh, They just are. And they have, depending on how we relate to those emotions, we can cultivate great wisdom from them, right? I mean, there's a very famous saying, those who didn't feel fear back in the in in the evolutionarily past, right? Those who didn't feel fear were dinner. Mm-hmm. Right? And basically mm-hmm. fear is a, is a very important emotion for us to feel because it can help keep us safe. However, if we have suppressed our ability to be in the presence of our own fear, then that part of our humanity has been fractured off and pushed aside and is unheard and unrecognized. And the longer that we live with, without the recognition of that part of our humanity, the less familiar we become with it and the more impactful it is on our lives. You know, in my book, Awakening from the Sexually Addicted Mind, I, I, a Compassionate Guide to Living, or Compassion Guide to Recovery, I talk about how at one point in my own life, in my own journey, I did this. There was a part of me that had been very damaged. Uh, for, I was, uh, you know, I was molested growing up. I had been raped twice. And that whole part of my psyche, my humanity, I pushed away all of the trauma from that. I just cut it off and I buried it. And I went on with my life. And inevitably, in order for me to learn to live a life that is connected to the outside, I had to re—I had to learn how to connect to those parts in my inside. And so I had to come to terms with those emotions and those very edgy, uncomfortable, potent and powerful and distressing uh, emotions that were in response to the trauma. For all addicts, this is what we have to do. We have to learn to be present with those parts of ourselves that we have just, you know, cut off. And if we don't, then we will continue to behave in ways that numb ourselves to emotions, whether those be using substances, whether that be using behaviors or, you know, anything like that. 
And the more we use a substance, no matter what it is, or behave in a certain way, the more we will need to do it because the more tolerance the body and, and gains to the substance, right? So the first time you drink a beer, mm-hmm. right, you you get you know a little buzz. But after the fifteenth time you drink a beer, you're going to need more. The first time you know you act out sexually, you know you you have a certain level of euphoria. But over time, that euphoria begins to decrease. So you have to create more intensity and go more into taboo areas to create more uh, euphoric. Uh, responses to the acting out behaviors. And so the byproduct of that is you become less and less focused on caring for yourself. The mind is conditioned to then focus more and more on ways and means to obtain whatever the object is or the behavior is of the obsession. And as a result of that, you tend to your life less and less and things unravel and then chaos ensues. Well, I absolutely agree with you and you know you brought up your book uh, which it it's a biography memoir I mean it, it talks about your life how you got there and how you found compassionate recovery and and I think back to when you watched I believe it was your father beat your stepmother and you saw it happening she got away you were going to, you thought, I need to get her the keys so she can really get out of here. But you would have had to have gotten in the way of your father. And so you made the choice to go upstairs and, and basically hide from your experience. And, and you said then, you know, choosing that, making that decision to um, avoid a trauma, a physical trauma, meant that you said negative, negative things about yourself. Um, And you questioned your courage from that day forward. And it certainly brought you a lot of shame. And we know that a lot of addicts have had that kind of conflict in their life, that kind of abuse, whether it's physical, sexual, emotional. They've had neglect. I remember when Patrick Carnes said, abuse is horrible, but neglect is even worse because the identity can't really form with any healthy role modeling. You have to just kind of create it yourself. And obviously when you create reality as a young child, you are not able to really make sense of it and you don't get what you need from healthy adults. And and it leaves you wounded and never feeling good enough. And I was thinking about that therapist you talked about at the beginning of the show, the fact that she taught you mindfulness, but she also had to be one of the very first people in your life that really was supportive and caring and compassionate and hung in there with you and kind of grew you up. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, absolutely. In fact, it's it's ironic because years later I, I reached out to her and I said, you know, you helped to raise me. Um, and it is very true. And I can remember, you know, I, I can remember back then in those days, right, it was $5 got you a meal at McDonald's or it got me therapy. And I would go without eating just to go to therapy. And that's uh-huh. how, like, important it was to me. 
And absolutely, and, and I think the fundamental thing that offered me the safety in that office with Sharon to, to really start to learn how to see my mind and to see that those negative ideas were just echoes of the trauma and had nothing to do with me as a human being. And was the fact that she was present and compassionate and understanding. And when I say compassionate, I don't mean just permissive. Like if I would go in there and, you know, I was being a, a, I don't know, maybe a, a reactive young kid who was, you know, yelling and screaming, which I would often do, you know, she would set boundaries with me and, and she would say, you know, this is sit down, take a deep breath. I'm not your enemy here. You know, and she would teach me how to come to terms with that anger. And I'll never forget that one time she had me write on my hand, my anger is how I'm seen. And she said, every, I want you to keep that on your hand every day for the next week. I want you every morning to write that on your hand and remind yourself every time you notice that you're feeling angry, that the need it met for you was to allow you to be seen in a family system that didn't acknowledge anything other than anger. And that was one of the most powerful tools that I had to start to learn how to be compassionate to myself in relationship to my own emotions. And this is the, I feel one of the greatest reasons that we suffer as human beings is we've been unconsciously trained to not embrace our emotions, but to define them as positive or negative or good or bad and to have this judgmental mindset in relationship to them. When really, you know, they're just like, the wind, the emotions rise, crest and fall like, like a wave on the ocean or like the wind. They come and they go. And it's our ability to have compassion in relationship to those emotions that will, in, that will facilitate our ability to be present with ourselves and others, right? Because when another person is having a very edgy emotion, if we haven't come to terms within our own heart, or our own mind state about the, our relationship to that emotion, we won't be able to sit with the other person in relationship to their emotion, right? If, if we have a reactive relationship with ourselves in relation in when we feel angry, then when another person feels angry, we will immediately be reactive because the relationship we have with others is nothing more or less than a reflection of the relationship we have with ourselves. So we really have to come to terms in general, I feel, as a culture, as a, as a society, as a popular world population with emotions. That being said, for people who've experienced trauma, and addicts have always experienced trauma, you know, I cannot stress this enough. Addiction is not about moral failings. It's not about... Uh, not having the courage to grab your keys and run right to, to, to give them to your mother in a, in, a, in a traumatic situation. It has nothing to do with right or wrong or good or bad. Addiction is honestly a natural, normal side effect of trauma. The mind tries to find a way to deal with the overwhelming, powerful, potent emotions that the child is experiencing trauma. And what is it? 
what does the mind do? It says, hey, let's find a way to distract ourselves from this because the child has nothing else to do. There has no other, no other tools at their disposal. So that distractive nature gets practiced. And over time, mm-hmm. right, that gets more and more adapted into the default node network of the brain and becomes more and more a habitualized behavior. And before, you know, the person even knows it as they're an adult, they're already practicing the compulsory behaviors on some level well before maybe they're, they're, you know, getting into substances or, or, you know, acting out sexually, they're doing it on some level, whether it's in fantasy, reading other books. And then when a child gets exposed to sex, I mean, it just is that much more. And it's rare that I have ever come across a addict who doesn't, you know, if, if they had a, a, an addiction to drugs, when we pull the veil back, they have, you know, they have compulsive or aversive relationships to money and shopping and sex. They, it all goes together. It's all, you know, basically isomorphic. There's no compartments. Everything stays, you know, um, every interaction that the addict has with their life in general is one that is based out of, out of a foundation of manage my emotions so that I do not become threatened or overwhelmed. You know, so then they're yes, never and vulnerable. We, and yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say, you know, we have known each other a long time, and and I had interviewed you way back before we worked together, and and um, I remember you sent me your first book. Maybe it's not your first, but Transforming the Addictive Mind. And yeah, that was my first. It really resonated for me um, in terms of both the process by which you help people to begin to slow their mind down and become introspective and reflect on their feelings. I mean, this book in and of itself is absolutely life-changing in it, and you do it in a month. And then, obviously, when did, I know that it was 2018 that, your other book, uh, Awakening from the Sexually Addictive Mind, A Guide to Compassionate Recovery, was supposed to come out. When did it actually come out? Um, it actually came out a little bit later than that. Uh, we, we did a couple of rever- revisions, so it didn't make it out in mm-hmm. 2018. Uh, like I wanted, it came out, I think I want to say uh, midway through 2019. I believe that's mm-hmm. when we actually uh, hit the press. So I, as you know, I, I um, have been very excited about sharing this message. So I was working on the book at the same time I was writing the curriculum for the certification program for mindfulness-based addiction and trauma therapists. And so mm-hmm. I just had a little too much on my plate. And so I had to set the book uh, release date back a little bit until I could get all the other stuff kind of completed. But, right. Well, we yeah. have a lot of clinicians who listen to this show, and you just said a mind. Uh, you said a mouthful. So I want to. I want to talk oh, about sorry. that for a second because yes, you were. You definitely wrote the one book, and I remember that I just felt this. Well, it, 
I hope this in no way will be offensive. It reminded me of Patrick Carnes's uh, recovery zone books uh, because, you know, he has his patients or clients talk to the addict and then he has, and I know you know this because you're a supervisor for certified sex addictions therapist, but he has then after they do that, he has them talk about what the client really feels in opposition to what the addictive mind says. And so when I was reading this format, which is genius, I said to myself, you know, this is such a Bible. And I'm talking now about transforming the addictive mind. It is such a Bible to practice very um, simply how to get in touch with your thoughts, with your feelings, and then with your behaviors. And then when I read your book uh, that came out a year ago, but I just got it, Awakening from the Sexually Addictive Mind, A Guide to Compassionate Recovery, I had no idea the trauma that you had been through and the abuse that you had witnessed and the rapes and the molests that you had been through. And and that on top of being gay, you know, I mean, culturally there, there was a whole phenomenon of gay men and women needed to prove themselves and they needed to justify their being. And certainly thank goodness that has changed, but you know, that was many years ago for you. I'm not saying you're old, but, you know, we didn't have that openness back then. And so it just seemed like everything was against you early on. And you basically, by listening to yourself, at least this is what I got from your memoir, Awakening uh, from the Sexually Addicted Mind, A Guide to Compassionate Recovery, I got that once you really listen to yourself, you have all the answers inside. You have them. Absolutely. But yep. you hadn't been given permission, nor had you been given a formula um, that you were ready for to figure out what was going on inside. And it's just a fascinating book. I recommend that everybody go out and get this because – now I'm going to fast forward to your MBAT, um, your mindfulness-based addiction. Is it therapy? Is that what the T stands for? Yeah, so it's mindfulness-based addiction and trauma therapists. So it's a it's there a certification and yeah, and mindfulness-based addiction and trauma therapy. And so um, what? So so first, I just wanted to back up and say. That idea of, of, you know, I had all the answers inside of me. I just needed to learn how to trust myself enough to to let mm-hmm. them out. I would say that is for all of us, for everyone. You know, what do we do as therapists? We help the client recognize that it's not the stories of their mind that define them. It's the relationship they have to themselves. And, you know, I often tell people we are born perfect. We spend the rest of our lives developing this thing called an ego and screwing ourselves up. Um, <laughs> but the, the truth is, is that for each and every one of us, 
we are the experts within our own heart and we have the answers. We just need to be afforded a safe enough opportunity to learn how to trust ourselves enough to let that out. And in order to do that, we have to turn down the volume of our mind so that we can then connect to to ourselves, to the intrinsic part of ourselves that have been kind of running in the background that we have never been able to attune to because we weren't afforded permission. Um, but mindfulness-based addiction and trauma therapy is a certification program. Um, I had I am we're launching the first one actually next month. The first online training. You, if you're a therapist, uh, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, uh, a LPC, you you can get your CEUs for it. Um, and we uh, do the training. It's over three days, and then you have some other trainings after that. And it's all about a very different approach to treating addiction. So in the past, you know, and cognitive behavioral therapy is fantastic for treating addiction. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I'm not putting any any interventions down. Uh, I think that they're wonderful, but it's just not enough. You, you, it takes more than just identifying what your thoughts are and learning how to reframe them and learning which ones are are constructive. It takes you learning how to have a vulnerable, intimate relationship with the parts of yourself that you have resisted. And that in the ripple effect of learning how to be vulnerable with yourself is that you learn how to be vulnerable with others. And as Patrick Carnes always says, right, addiction at its core is a is an intimacy disorder. And what's a cornerstone of intimacy? Vulnerability. And so that's kind of what transforming the addicted mind does uh, for the client. And what uh, the certification is doing is, is teaching therapists how to, to, well, first of all, it's teaching therapists the science behind mindfulness. Uh, so it's, it's rooted in the research of, you know, Richie Davison, who, you know, I don't know, he's a neuropsychologist at the University of Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. He's uh, been labeled by Time Magazine as one of the most influential men in the world. Um, he, you know, is, is the, the guy who, who did all of the uh, MRI studies of the monks, right, of the meditation gold medalists, if you will. And mm -hmm. so, you know, it's based out of that research, based out of John Kabat-Zinn's research, based out of Daniel Siegel, who, who runs the Mind Insight, uh, Mind Insight Center out of UCLA. So all of their research um, is kind of the foundation, not the kind of, is the foundation of the certification program. And then after we, we discuss the, the um, research, we move into practical applications and interventions as well as assessment types and styles and specific questions for assessments uh, that, that a clinician can start to do to start to allow the client to wake up to the stories that their mind creates, to the emotionality that the client experiences. And, you know, in order, I always tell people, uh, in order to be a mindfulness-based therapist, you have to practice mindfulness yourself because there are no compartments. It's all isomorphic. It's all interconnected. 
And so we have to learn how to see our own mind and not be our own mind in order to learn how to teach clients how to start to have a non-reactive relationship to their mind, right, or a non-addictive or not to, to follow through with the addictive mind suggestions. And so that's really what the training program is all about. It, of course, you get CEUs for it and all of that good stuff. Um, and I'm very mm-hmm. excited and, for it. I, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was going to say, dear, remind everybody what date it starts and also let them know how they could sign up for this uh, certification. Training, oh, yeah. So, the, yeah, mm-hmm. the, next, the next training is going to be February, just next month, 5th, 6th, and then a half a day on the 7th. And everybody could go to TMAT, T-M-A-A-T-T dot com, um, and they can register right there. If uh, they type in, and this is just for, you know, for um, – your audience, if they type in the code mindful one, mm-hmm. they will get mm-hmm. a $200 discount. Oh my so goodness. So as they register, okay. if they just type in mindful one, then they'll receive a $200 discount on their, um, yeah, on the fees. So, okay, now is that mindful in, with the letter one, I mean the number one or? The number one, yes. One. Yeah. So okay. and capital M. And we have an amazing faculty. We have uh, Mari Lee. She's one of our faculty. Uh, who Mari Lee is also known as a counselor, counselor's coach. I often, uh, and she's been, you know, a staple. She wrote Facing Heartbreak with Stephanie Carnes. Um, we have um, Josie Miles, who is an amazing mindfulness-based uh, therapist that's going to be also uh, presenting or is also a faculty member. And, you know, we have several others. So it's, it's very exciting. I'm deeply humbled. Uh, we've had an amazing response so far. Um, the training actually is almost, you know, full. And, you know, I'm, I'm just very excited that this has been, you know, years. Uh, and this has been a dream of mine for decades. You know, I often think of, being a being a kid of the 80s, right, and and that was a time when Madonna was very popular, and there was an interview that she had, and the um, interviewer said, you know, I, why are you singing? Why are you doing all this? Like you're not the best singer in the world. And she said, well, I never became a singer because I believed I was the best singer in the world. I became a singer because I had something to say, and I've always felt like my the experience I had in my addiction and my recovery and being in the unique position of also being a treatment provider, I just had a passion to help those who work in the world of mental health and recovery. Uh, I had a passion to share something I had something to say to our to our professional our profession. And so this has been a passion, you know, a desire of mine for decades, and I'm finally so happy to know that we've taken fruition and it's and it's moving forward, and it's just incredible. So I'm very very well, excited. Well, I want to say I'm going to be there. So if you're listening right now, just know that 
this is something that I've wanted to do for a long time. And this certification not only is going to teach us how to transform the addictive mind, but, you know, as Darren said, it's a comprehensive research-based training. And it's a small class setting. That's the good news. It's not overly large. Um, you do get CEUs, and you have this amazing connection to a community of global leaders. And it's all about connection. You know, Darren just mentioned, Patrick Garn said, the antidote for um, sex addiction is intimacy. And, you know, when you said that, what I believe to be true is that's mindfulness, because the intimacy has to start with us, with each one of us, before we can give it to anybody else. And then I know there people are getting other perks, like obviously if they're a part of this certification program, they'll have access to um, working with you, the publishing company, and getting some discounts because we all know professionals all have a book inside of them, at least one, right? Um, and, and then Mari Lee, who is renowned in the world of certified sex addiction therapists, and she too is a supervisor, she's also giving a discount on business skills through her counselor's coaching business program. So it really ripples out into lots of possibilities, and it is inexpensive. And you heard, if you want $200 off the price, it, let me make sure I got this right, Darren. It's mindful one or mindfulness one? Mindful one. So mindful and no space, just the number one. And yeah. that so, you put that in your discount code and, and you'll have $200 off. Right. And so, again, that starts, and if I'm not mistaken, you said that's February. I'm going to be doing it. I've already crossed it out. <laughs> But that is actually February 5th, 6th, and a half a day on February 7th. And we're not allowed to talk prices um, on the air. But I'm telling you, this is one of the most reasonable certification programs um, available. And, you know, for me, I'm not a sex addict in recovery. So many um, incredible clinicians are. But truly, mindfulness is something we all can use, and there's always an area of excess somewhere. Uh, for me, it's being a workaholic and not being able to turn it off. And so that's how I'm going to be applying your course. It's something you do personally and you practice personally, and then, of course, you teach it to your clients. And I've got a, I've got a question for you, Darren, because I've got – um, some mixed feelings about this. You, you know, you read and hear that um, sex addicts, as well as other addicts, have attention deficit disorder, and that the attention deficit disorder contributes to the sex addiction. And mm -hmm. since sex addiction and attention deficit disorder look so much alike and parallel in terms of brain science, so much. I'm curious, do you think that um, sex addicts also have the dual diagnosis of attention deficit disorder, or do you think that it has created attention deficit 
disordered looking behavior, but that it that it is not officially ADD. Yeah, so this is a, a wonderful question. And, and before I answer that, I'll just very quickly, when I uh, very first started as a trainee, as a, as a marriage family therapist trainee, I worked uh, in the inner schools, you know, in, in South Central Los Angeles. And at that time, they were diagnosing kids left and right with ADHD. And what we learned later is that was that ADHD was the most misdiagnosed mental health disorder and that what they thought was ADHD was actually signs of PTSD. And so what I would say is there is research that shows that, you know, that there is a correlational relationship with highly reactive behaviors and short-term attention spans and all of the other characteristics that would be present in ADHD in sex addicts. I would also say, though, that there's also a lot of behaviors that correlate with PTSD. And I think where the world is going in mental health is that what we're going to start to see is that there are certain neuronal pathways that are associated with certain types of behaviors and those correlate with, with, with what we might diagnose as ADHD, but that really it's, it's all paired together, if that makes sense. So I, I would argue that there, whether you have ADHD or whether you have sex addiction or whether you have PTSD, that all of this is a cluster and it's a response to trauma. Because if you think That's about ADHD, yeah, because if you think about ADHD, right, why does the person have to refocus their attention or, or, have, you know, or, or why do they get distracted very easily or anything like that? It's because they cannot be present with the emotional discomfort, right? They're connected to this desiring mind that wants to grab onto everything in the environment, right? That would be very much associated with hypervigilance in PTSD, Right, that would be hyper associated a lot with um, pornography addiction, where you're going, or internet addiction, where you're going from one one attention focusing behavior to the other. And so I think what we're going to see is all of these are really reacting in the same set of neural pathways, which is the dopamine neural pathways, which is the is allows us to experience pleasure and numbs us or, or brings down the distress. Right. And so I think what we're going to see in general as time moves on in the world of therapy is that we're going to start to come to terms with the fact that there are trauma-focused responses and non-trauma-focused responses. And those trauma-focused responses cluster in that kind of hypervigilance, highly distractive, very reactive mindsets. And that's what I mean by the relationship to your mind. If you have a relationship to your mind's eye that is reactive, then you're going to display those kinds of symptomologies. And our goal as a therapist would be to help you see that, that reactivity in your mind, not be that reactivity in your mind, and then attune to the emotional discomfort within and learn how to practice constructive, compassionate towards yourself in relationship to, to being having the vulnerability or the awareness of that uncomfortable 
emotional energy that your that your mind is trying to get you to react to. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, that makes a lot of sense, and um, I just would encourage anybody and everybody to consider taking this training. If you're a counselor, a psychiatrist, uh, a working professional that's licensed, and again, you can just go to it. I've looked at this site many, many times, um, but I didn't get the bat thing. So you go on the site and you see this bat, and then, of course, you see the most beautiful website after that in the world. It's so mindful that it it just brings you right to serenity. I told you that before. It's amazing, and I can't believe Brittany did it for you. Brittany and Mari, right? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we, we worked so, we worked a long time on that website, but Brittany is the one that wrote the code for it. Absolutely. And, and we, me, Mari and Brittany just pulled all of, all of it together. So, yeah, so come very and join me. Come and join me for the training in the Mindfulness Academy for Addiction and Trauma Training. And it, it'll be good for your soul, and it'll be good for your clients, and it's a win-win. And Darren, are you going to be doing some of the teaching? Absolutely, I will be. I will be uh, teaching the first, I think the entire first day is is me teaching. Um, we talk about, you know, the mind uh, in the first day, and we also talk about just the nature of addiction and the, or the addictive mind, um, getting the real foundations down and then the the other days are we go into diversity and intrinsic relationships to implicit bias in relationship to the mind and how that manifests itself in the addiction um, and we also talk about uh, of course law and ethics and all of those things you know that's one thing very quickly that I would say is you know I hear clinicians all the time tell me, oh, yeah, I practice mindfulness, and they kind of do it on the side. And I get very concerned because, you know, there are side effects to mindfulness if, you, if you're not very skilled and if it's not in your scope of practice. So I would not encourage anybody to do mindfulness interventions if they just kind of do them on the side and they're not really their forte, but they're like, oh, you know, I heard about this thing. Because there's a very, um, in the world of mindfulness, there's something called the dark night of the soul. And that's when a person wakes up to their mind. If, if you don't do it in the right way, they will become unraveled. It will become too much too fast, especially for somebody who's experienced trauma. You know, I've worked with people who have just sat for the first time in in a meditative practice, and that's the first time they've ever really connected to their inner parts of themselves. And when they do that, they become flooded with emotions, and they don't know how to manage them. And so you have to be – you really have to know what you're doing as a mindfulness-based clinician uh, when you're working with a client because you wouldn't want to turn them – what I say is you would want to put them in the deep end of the pool before they know how to swim, right? And you got to get them acclimated right. to the water first, you know. And so it's it's very important to to know your scope of practice, you know. And that was well, the reason why you said I that came be- up with the certification. Sorry. So the other question I had is you definitely said 
professionals that are licensed. So coaches cannot take this training currently. Currently, no. However, I am working on another certification program that would be mindfulness-based uh, recovery coaches, so it, coaching. And so that's going to be special ta- specialized just for coaches. Um, and that's going to be a whole different certification track that will uh, come out later. Um, so we really want to, you know, um, there's a big difference, and a lot of people don't realize it. As you know, you're, you're a coach, so you, as well as a therapist, you know, there's a big difference between coaching and therapy. And so we, I just felt like they need to be two completely separate tracks. Oh, I agree with you 100%, but I noticed some of your sponsors, and um, Coach for Recovery was one of them. And I was just checking in because I work with a lot of coaches through AppSats, and I know they would love this. So you keep me posted when you do something specifically for, you know, ICF coaches. I'd love to hear more about that. So Darren Ford, thank you so much for coming on and talking about your two books and the certification program. It's amazing. People get awakening from the sexually addicted mind, a guide to compassionate recovery. And and come join me February 5th. I'm, I'm looking to get it. Is it the 5th or the 4th? It's that Friday. Come join yeah, me. Yeah, it's and that Friday. Let's take this class together. And don't forget, if you put in the promo code MINDFUL1, you'll get $200 off. So, I'll see you in a couple of weeks, Darren. I'm so looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it, too, and congratulations on your new books. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. You're welcome. All okay, right. Thank Make you so much. Make it a good one. And we'll... Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. So that is Darren Ford, and I mean, that guy is out of the ashes of trauma. I'm telling you, when you read this book, it's heartbreaking. Um, Out of the Ashes of Trauma is beauty of somebody who has found the answer and is giving it away. All right. You're talking to Carol, the coach. And um, as I always say at the end of every show, there will only be one of you at all times. So fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. We'll see you next week.